Well, I start with Joshua, and I'll continue with Joshua. Uh, in past February, we had our, our pastor's conference. I don't know if you guys remember, but we had uh, maybe a dozen or so pastors and shepherds and leaders of Cornerstone gathered together for a three-day conference um, at uh, Huey's house, and Peter Smith came and shared with us the word. And during the break, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, during break, Joshua came up to me really with conviction in his eyes. And he said, Pastor James, I have a question for you. And I said, what is it, Joshua? And he said, what are the fundamentals of playing basketball? (laughs) (laughs) Right in the middle of a pastor's conference. (laughs) And my response was, here's a man after my own heart. Talk about unity. I'm right there with you, brother. And, uh, you know, I, I, how do you just summarize playing ball with, in response to that question? So my first answer was, okay, the first rule of basketball is this. You know, pass the ball to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Give the ball to Pastor James every time. Right, rule number two, Pastor James can shoot anytime he wants. <laughs> right, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that at all. I was, I was trying to respond to the basic fundamentals of basketball. It was, it was really difficult. Now, here's a transition to ministry, right? Shift gears to ministry. What are the uh, fundamental responsibilities of a pastor, right? You come up to me during pastor's conference, and you don't ask me about basketball. You ask me about ministry, and you say, Pastor James, um, I'm a pastor, elder, intern, I'm a flock shepherd. I'm a small group leader. I'm a leader of a ministry at Cornerstone. What are my, what would you say are my top two responsibilities? And I would, I would go through the list of the responsibilities that are mandated in the scriptures for church leaders. I mean, there are so many. We are called to shepherd. We're called to teach, called to evangelize. We're called to pray. We're called to lead and labor. We're called to serve. We're called to love. The flock, I mean, there's so many responsibilities. But if you were to back me into a corner and ask me, James, narrow it down to top two, I would say that the top two responsibilities of a church leader is to model the truth and teach the truth. Right? Doctrine and practice. Doctrine and life. Well, you might respond, well, Pastor James, what about prayer? I thought prayer was a priority for the church. It is. So a pastor must teach on prayer and model prayer. Oh, what about evangelism? Shouldn't we be preaching the gospel, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20? That's right. So the church leader, he must teach Matthew 8, 28, 19, and 20 and model Matthew 28, 19, and 20 by his life. The ministry has to be an extension of his Christian life. It can't be a professional occupation. It can't be something external, something artificial, something manufactured 9 to 5 on weekdays or 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. on Sundays. It has to be the very fabric of who he is. He must believe it, he must teach it, and he must live it out. He must practice it. We see this emphasis throughout the scriptures. Um, Ezra 7.10 Ezra, a man of God's word, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. You see that progression. 
You see that step-by-step process. Ezra discovered the law of God, the law of Yahweh, discovered the Pentateuch, the Torah, and his first commitment was to study it. He needed to understand its truths. And then his second step was not to teach, was not to be engaged in the ministry of preaching and teaching. His second step, after studying it, was to apply it to himself, right? do uh, micromanagement, do surgery of the soul to the self, and to do it, to practice it, to obey its precepts. And then it was to teach the laws and ordinances to Israel. Um, life and doctrine again, right? Life and doctrine. First Timothy 4, 12 and 13, that same emphasis is seen again, that same order, the same marriage of life and doctrine. Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy. Let no one circumvent you. Kataphroneo. Let no one disregard you, think around you, undermine you, just overlook you. Let no one allow, allow you to do, don't let anyone allow you to do that. Instead, how do you um, do ministry? Set the believers an example. Right. If people are disregarding you, they won't listen to you, they won't observe you. They're not intent on imitating your conduct. They're not submitting themselves under your authority and heeding your instruction. Timothy, don't let them do that. How do you circumvent that? How do you overcome that? It's by setting an example. Show by your life that you're serious. Show by your life where you command their respect. You command their hearing. You command their attention by being an example. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and in purity. So there is the life part. And then in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to reading publicly of the scriptures, exhortation, and to teaching. Here's that marriage again, right? Set an example and devote yourself to the word of God, teaching it. And then a few verses later, in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says again, Watch your... What? What's your... Come on, Sam. (laughs) You're saying it, but you're whispering it. Watch your life. Come on, people. Watch your... One more time. Watch your... And... Right? If you're a cornerstone, even for any amount of time, you know. That's just one of the pillars of our ministry. Watch your life and ministry. They have a symbiotic relationship. And one without the other bankrupts ministry. If you have teaching without life, there's no integrity, there's no ethos. Right? There must be logos, pathos, and ethos for, for vibrant ministry of the word. There must be passion, there must be logic, but there must be integrity of life that upholds the teaching. So watch your life. But that doesn't mean you can overlook biblical sound, sound doctrine, right doctrine. So you need to watch both. And that leads us to Titus 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here is the sandwich of life and doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So here it is again, doctrine. We need to teach the life that fits sound doctrine. Teaching doctrine, but also teaching life. And then verse 7, here is life. Show yourself to be a model of good works. Teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, 
having nothing evil to say about us. Again, life and doctrine. Doctrine is powerful. It's like the church. The church is powerful. Apart from Christians. But the agency, the means by which the church is made effective, made powerful, is through Christians. Likewise, the Word of God is powerful in of itself. But practically, the Word of God is powerful. Brings conviction when it is supported by a man or men or a church that lives out its truths. So teach and teaching and life. Teaching and practice. Doctrine and demonstration of that doctrine through life. It's theology and applying that theology to every nook and cranny of life. That is our calling as leaders in the church. Top two responsibilities. Right, if I were to bare bones, right, the ministry, the irreducible two uh, responsibilities, I would say life and doctrine. Pastor John MacArthur has said, setting an example of godly living that others can follow is the foundation of excellence in ministry. When a manifest pattern of godliness is missing, the power is drained out of preaching, leaving it a hollow and empty shell. A minister's life is his most powerful message and must reinforce what he says or he may as well not say it. Authoritative preaching is undermined if there is not a virtuous life backing it up. So authoritative ministry, any kind of ministry, is undermined if there is not a virtuous life backing it up. So, church leaders must model all the virtues of Christianity. And in our context, Titus 2, right? Church leaders, starting with the elders, pastors, interns, flock shepherds, so on. We must model in every way all the virtues found in the scriptures. And in our context, Titus 2, even Titus 1, the qualifications for elders, 1 Timothy 3 and 4, on and on and on. But we must understand, this modeling doesn't start with us. right? As, as elders, we don't say to you, imitate us. Because it doesn't start with us. It starts with God. God has given us a model for us to follow. Ephesians 5.2 calls us to be imitators of God. All of us here, all Christians, we are commanded by God to imitate God. Now, how do we imitate God? He has given us a model, an example for us to follow. In Jesus Christ. His incarnational ministry was ultimately for the, was for the purpose of our redemption. was for the purpose of atonement through the cross. But in terms of life and ministry, He was incarnate to set an example for us to follow, to see God as He is, practically in real life, and for us to pattern our lives after Him. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we have seen His glory. And we saw His glory not just in His miracles. We saw His glory in, um, in so many mundane ways. Do we not? Do we not? We see the glory of God in Christ's humility. When He washed the feet of the saints. John 13, 13 14 and 15. Jesus said, 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. I have given you a tupas, a model, a prototype, a pattern for you to follow. That you should do just as I have done to you. We see the glory of God right there. That He would humble Himself and become a man and wash the feet of dirty sinners as an example for the apostles. That they might also wash the feet of the saints. And that's an example for us. How can we follow God's example unless He has given us that model and He has given us that model through the Gospels? 1 Peter 2, 21-35 Our Lord set an example for us in His unearned suffering. For suffering for righteousness. For being sped on, being beaten, being slapped, being mocked for righteousness. And He didn't retaliate. He didn't fight back. He didn't threaten. He submitted Himself to the Sovereign Father knowing that He is in control. He like a... Like a meek little lamb went to the slaughter joyfully. And that's the example for us to follow. I'm just read it to you. First Peter 2, 21-25 For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to God who judges right justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the truth, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here is the pattern, an example, a model for us to follow for unearned suffering. And then from 1 Peter 2.25, he goes to 1 Peter 3.1. And what's 1 Peter 3.1? It's women, wives, Christian women who are married to unbelieving husbands. And how unbelieving husbands are apt to persecute their own wives because of their faith. And Peter says, you women, look at Christ's example. We don't have to be in the dark as to how we are to respond to cruel and unjust leaders or authorities, even unjust husbands. We can look to Christ because He has set a pattern for us to follow. And it goes to slaves and husbands and and children and, and pastors as well. In fact, we are to imitate not just external um, acts of Christ, but His mindset as well. We are seek to understand the mind of Christ and imitate how He thought while He was on the earth. Philippians 2.5 Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not enough for us, so it's not calling us to impersonate Christ. That's just so absurd. Right? You know, we're called to imitate Christ beginning with the doctrine of Christ and the humility of His mind, submitting Himself to the Father though He was in every way God. This is uh, part of our discipleship. This is part of Christ's lordship. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We follow his example. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
First John 3.16, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Christ set the example. He laid Himself down. As we follow His example, we are to do the same. Lay down our lives for the church. Hebrews 12.3, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you and I will not grow weary or faint-hearted. So what should be in our consideration? Who should be the one that we look to as an example constantly? That is Christ. Christ gave this example to the apostles and Christ commissioned the apostles to be examples for us. Right? You see that chain? God to Christ, Christ to the apostles. In Mark 3.14, He chose 12 men that they might be with Him and be sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That, that clause to be with Him is so important because Christ wanted the apostles to see and know His heart, know His mind, know Him personally. Like right life. See, right doctrine is more taught than caught. Right, right doctrine. It's classroom setting. It's just, you know, tables and pens and, and you know, kind of dull and lifeless and just teach information. But right life is more caught than taught. Understand? Right, right life is dynamic. It's in the milieu. It's in the thick of things, in the thin of things. It's in the ebb and flow of life. And so it's important for Christ that the apostles not just know the doctrine, but they know His life. So He pointed them that they might be with Him and also know the truth, to be sent out to preach the truth. John 17, the high priestly prayer is all about how Christ manifested His God's name to the apostles. Doctrine. And then He prays in 1717, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's not just doctrine that I passed on to them, Father. I passed them on to them my holiness, your holiness. And this was the foundation of Paul's ministry. This was really the bulwark, the foundation, the core of Paul's ministry. He began his ministry with himself. His first ministry was his own life. He gave everything he had to be an example to support his doctrine. First um, Corinthians 11.1 1, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Philippians 3.17 Join with others in following my example. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 He commands the Thessalonians for not just receiving doctrine. The Thessalonians were special. They were a dear church. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He modeled Christ's like, likeness to them and they embraced it. First Thessalonians 2.10 You are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Second Thessalonians 3.7-9 He appeals to them of their personal knowledge of the apostles and his co-workers, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we were diligent. We worked night and day, laboring and toiling, 
so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow, we didn't want to set a wrong example of being dependent on others. We wanted to set an example of diligence, of laboring hard, of being self-sufficient. So even though we had the right to receive help from you, we work with our hands to be an example for you to follow. He modeled this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 10, 11. Timothy, you know all about my teaching and you know my way of life. Listen to these words. Note the intimacy. The, the hours, the days, the weeks, the months, the light that was shared between these two men. How ministry wasn't a professional pursuit. It wasn't work. It wasn't just a task. It was Paul's life. It was Timothy's life. And they shared it together. And he personally strove to set an example to Timothy. You know my way of life, my purpose. Timothy, you know my faith, patience, love and endurance, persecutions, sufferings. Timothy, you know what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch. Iconium and Lystra. The persecutions I endured, too many to account here in this letter. But Timothy, you know what I'm all about. You know me personally. I've set this example to you. So here's that chain. God to Christ, Christ to the apostles. Apostles to Timothy and Titus. In that way, Bible to the elders, pastors, and shepherds of Cornerstone Bible Church. That's the link. That's the, the unbroken chain of models that we are to follow. And our model is found in the scriptures. Like 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul is telling Timothy, so he's telling me. He's telling Bob, he's telling Marcus, he's telling the shepherds, let no one disregard you in terms of your teaching and doctrine. But instead, set an example. Right? There is that unruly guy in your flock. There is that girl who comes and falls asleep during small group, right? There's a guy that comes to flock late and leaves early, right? Says two words. Or there's a guy in your flock that comes every second or third week. Don't let them do that. But set an example for you, for them, right? First Timothy 4, watch your life and doctrine. About First Peter 5, 1, 2, and 3. Peter, through the scriptures, tells us, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now listen to this. Not domineering over those in your charge. Not, you know, my wife said, what is that thing you said last week, James? That UFC, what is that? All the sisters, they don't don't have no idea what you're talking about. So all the brothers understand, you know, women. It's it's like um, mixed martial arts. Tapping will demonstrate it after service and tell your husbands to challenge him and demonstrate UFC. But it's like 
it's like boxing, but no holds barred, everything, you know, kicking, you know, scratching, everything, biting. So maybe not biting, but it's allowed. Where you domineer over your opponent. You enforce, you, call, you make them submit. Paul's saying, elders, don't do that. Don't domineer your flock. Instead, verse 3, but being examples to the flock. Being examples. So that's our philosophy of ministry. That's the pattern that I am trying to follow, and I believe the elders and the shepherds and the small group leaders of Cornerstone, we're trying to pursue as well. Right doctrine and right life. Titus 2, 1 and 7. That's the first promise a good leader makes. That's the first promise, first commitment, first self-promise and promise to those entrusted to the leader makes. So if you're a husband, you make that promise to your wife and children. If you're a flock shepherd, you make that promise to your flock members. If you're a pastor, you make that promise to your church. I will pursue with all my might to be a model for you, to be an example. I understand what Luther said, that a Christian is the most free Lord of all. I'm free, subject to none. At the same time, a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to all. I understand I'm free from you. You have no authority over me, but yet I understand as a leader, I am subject to you. I am your slave in the sense where I will strive with all my might to be an example. Example of Christ-likeness. This is a responsibility that God calls us to. Calls us to devote, our, devote ourselves to understand um, right doctrine, more importantly, right life. It's a challenge for us though, isn't it? Cornerstone Bible Church. It's a, this is a great challenge for us. You know, our natural inclination is to be unbalanced toward doctrine and teaching and away from life and practice. Right? Any problem in the church, our natural default reaction is we need more teaching. Right? We need, we need more conferences, more retreats, more study of the word. Right, we are definitely more of a white-collar church, spiritually speaking, than a blue-collar church. We are much more into uh, the academic understanding of doctrine rather than the practical living out of, that, of these doctrines. Right? That's what we were talking about when we were discussing our philosophy of small groups months ago. And we were presenting this to the uh, shepherds, and we want to make this change, man. What do you guys think? You know, on Sunday, our, our people get the word. Our people get the word on second hour. At retreats, they get the word. And yet, they get the word again during flocks. We're thinking, we, we, we believe God is leading us to move away from another sermonic time, another monologue time during the midweek studies, and more towards life-on-life, sharing of life, application-oriented time, more on small groups to, to apply truths that we are learning on Sundays to our, to our lives. What do you think? And the men, the unified response was, we think that's right, but that it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. Because it's easier to stand behind the Bible and teach the Bible. So much easier. Right? Let's just study this book and see what it says. It's much harder to say, let's look at my life. 
right? Let's look at my DVD collection, right? Let's look at my iTunes, you know, song collection. Let's look at my library. Let's look at my checkbook. Let's look at your checkbook. Let's look at your DVD collection, your songs that are in your iTunes. Much more difficult. The response was wholeheartedly, yes, that's right. It's going to be difficult. All the more we need to do this because we are prone to be doctrine rather than life. So for the rest of our time, just going to spend, look at the first two words, show yourself, right? Show yourself. Talking to the leaders of our church. We need to show ourselves. We need to demonstrate. We need to, uh, you know, humble ourselves. We need to, uh, man, you know, we need to break out of this formal business ministry and commit ourselves to personal life-on-life ministry. And I know it's hard. I, I know it's difficult. I know it's a challenge. Um, I, I, you know, I was brainstorming why this is so difficult, why personal ministry is such a challenge. And I came up with like 25 things. I don't, I don't want to spend 20, you know, all this time looking at that, but just categorize the three different areas. Three P's why showing yourself ministry is so difficult. First P is um, people. Right? People make it difficult. I know this is not a good quote, but man, there's some ounce of truth to it. And I, I agree, right? It might not be right, but I agree. That ministry would be so much easier without people, right? Man, ministry would be like a joy. It was for you guys, right? And myself included. So we see uh, the pain of people ministry in Second Corinthians. We see, you know, you read that letter and you could just, you know, you, you got to read in between the lines there. I advocate that kind of hermeneutics for Second Corinthians, right? Read the white, interpret the white spaces. If you're reading with your heart, you sense Paul's just discouragement. Paul's pain. You could sense that of all the letters, definitely St. Corinthians, he wrote with tears in his eyes. All the letters, he wrote that letter with a broken heart. He was dejected and full of remorse in his heart. Grief and sorrow filled his heart as he wrote that letter. It's obvious as you read that letter. Why? Because of people. And what did he experience? Intentionally and unintentionally, he experienced uh, rejection. Right? Rejection. St. Corinthians 12.1 If I love you more, will you love me less? That's the question that Paul was asking. I want to open my heart to you. Why will you not open your heart to me? If I love you more, will you love me less? That's a question because there is a possibility that the Corinthians will even love him even less. More and more as he sacrifices for them. And this is what makes personal ministry a challenge because of rejection. The fear of rejection and the reality of rejection. It's happened before, it will happen again, and happen many more times in the future for all the shepherds in the church. Like if you want to do ministry but you don't want to get dirty, if you want to do life and doctrine ministry but you don't want to get hurt, then you're in the wrong pursuit. Like, like it goes hand in hand. You can't have ministry without getting rejected and feeling hurt and uh, experiencing loss and pain. Like, being offended, being disappointed, and being, being hurt personally. It's, it's, it's 
part of ministry. Uh, the fear of um, disappointing people makes personal ministry difficult, right? And a lot of people have um, too high expectations of spiritual leaders. Too high expectations. I remember years ago, one sister asked, like James, and she, I think she asked my wife, "Do you guys ever argue? And what do you, if you guys do, what do you guys argue about? Doctrine, right?" <laughs> I, also, I understand her heart because as she sees James and Serene, she can't possibly think of anything that they would argue over. So maybe you guys argue over scripture or theology, and we're like, "Why we argue over like just the most dumbest things in the world?" But it shows like wrong expectations. And if you have too high expectations, of course, we're going to let you down. You know, for me, um, I have this love-hate relationship with Meals on Wheels. Right? My stomach loves Meals on Wheels. So when, when my wife gets, we have a baby, that's why I want a lot of children, just for the meals. <laughs> right? For two, three weeks, people bring over food. Man, it's great. And you guys are good. You guys prepare good meals, you know, delicious food. But the hate part of it is, I'm at home with my shorts and my shirts that are like multicolored because it's so old or they're holy shirts because literally they have holes in them, right? And, and my hair is all over the place because you slept late, woke, woke up early. And I know when you come over to my house with, your, with the food, you expect me to come out with a three-piece suit, right? With a Bible in my hand, right? I know that's what you're expecting because... When I come out with shorts and my holy shirt, you look at me like, you're my pastor? What's going on here? Right? So I can't stay up there and hide till you leave. I have to come down. But I have to, man, do my hair, you know, shave and put on at least a, you know, collared shirt and slacks and dress shoes. No, I have to prepare myself because I know you have expectations of me. Right? Maybe too high. But I mean, just fear of disappointing people because of expectations or being judged on preferential issues, right? Being judged on disputable matters. Like, you guys, I don't know, James, you play ball on Sundays? Isn't Sabbath sacred? Uh, you, James, you watch TV, right? You, uh, right? And so on and so on, right? Being judged on that or esteeming one leader over another. Right? Esteeming one shepherd over another, one small group leader. Yeah, my flock leader is not a good teacher, but oh, the other flock shepherd, man, he's such a good teacher. Why can't you be more like him? Right? Those kind of things intentionally, unintentionally discourage, disappoint, and hurt. And that's a challenge of showing your life, showing yourself, being engaged in personal ministry. Second reason, second P is pride. Our pride. And we seek to do personal life-on-life ministry. We are forced to confront our own weaknesses, our own failures, our own sins. It's easy to act perfect when you're teaching because you have everything prepared. I have notes here, right? So even what I'm saying right now is all written down, right? I'm not going to make any mistakes. I'm not going to flub up in in what I say because it's all prepackaged here. But life is not prepackaged. Life is not planned. Life happens. And so when I 
see, to demonstrate my life, you will see my gaps, my blind spots, my faults, my idiosyncrasies, the weirdness of you know, all the leaders here. And that calls us to confront ourselves, look at the mirror of God's word and, and see ourselves and we see our own pride. And the way of pride is to stand be, you know, behind the Bible, hide behind formal ministry. The way to humility is saying, you know what? What did Paul say in Philippians 3? I have yet to take hold of it. I have not attained perfection, but I'm pursuing Christ to lay a hold of that which Christ laid hold of me. Life on life forces us to confront our pride, confront our hypocrisy, the gap that exists between our profession and our practice. See, when we just do teaching ministry, it can become a source of deception source of deception because you start to believe you are what you teach like what you say is truly who you are and ministry is a real double-edged sword ministry is a dangerous place for Christians to go into that's why a young believer shouldn't strive to be a teacher or a, or a leader in any way because that very active ministry can deceive your heart to think that you are what you say but life on life ministry is a you know water to the face it reminds you well, that's just what I'm teaching. I'm teaching the perfect law of God. So my instruction is biblical, but my life falls far short of the perfect word of God. I live here, though I preach here. And personal ministry calls us to confront that great chasm that separates the two. So second P is pride. Third P is professionalism in ministry professionalism in ministry it's the professional attitude towards leading in the church E.M. Bounds said the shepherd is not a professional man his ministry is not a profession it is a divine institution a divine devotion lengthy quote by John Piper shepherds are being killed by the professionalization of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence and heart of the Christian ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, Matthew 18.3. There is no professional tender-heartedness, Ephesians 4.32. There is no professional panting after God, Psalm 42.1. I think God has exhibited shepherds as last of all in the world. We are fools for Christ's sake, but professionals are wise. We are weak, but professionals are strong. Professionals are held in honor. We are in disrepute. We do not try to secure a professional lifestyle, but we are ready to hunger and thirst and be ill-clad and homeless. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the refuse of the world, the outscoring of all things. Then he says, brothers, we are not professionals. We are outcasts. We are aliens and exiles in the world. The professionalization of the ministry is a constant threat to the offense of the gospel. It is a threat to the profoundly spiritual nature of our work. I have seen it often. 
the love of professionalism kills a man's belief that he is sent by God to save people from hell and to make them Christ-exalting spiritual aliens in the world. God, deliver us from professionals. Banish professionalism from our midst. Pastor John Piper. What are some marks of professional shepherds, professional leaders? They separate ministry and life. Your shepherd is a professional shepherd if he doesn't spend time with you apart from flock. Your small group leader is just punching in, doing ministry before man if he doesn't seek a personal relationship with you, if he doesn't care for you personally. They have their work time and their lifetime. Ministry time and work lifetime is separate. Professional shepherds work with people rather than live with people. Professional shepherds just share spiritual things with you. They don't share their life. They just share their successes. They don't share their failures, their struggles. Professional shepherds seek a formal relationship rather than a personal relationship. Professional shepherds run away when trials come to the church. They're bandwagon leaders. They are like professors in the seminary, not shepherds. Right? They're just teachers. Right? So I understand um, this is you know, part and parcel of how we've been for many years at Cornerstone. Kind of a result of our upbringing. And uh, let me just qualify this. You know, I love the Master Seminary. Um, you know, driving home from seminary for many for the first year, I used to drive home with tears in my eyes. So thankful for that institution. But one of the unintended consequences of seminary training is that it produces an unbiblical or incomplete view of ministry. I think particularly TMS because they so emphasize pulpit ministry, preaching ministry. It undermines. Um, this life-on-life shepherding ministry. One of the pastors said this, that all other ministries apart from the pulpit is window dressing. I understand what he means. They want to uphold the pulpit. I uphold the pulpit. This is the most important hour for Cornerstone, Sunday morning service. At the same time, to say that other ministries just window dressing is going way too far. It's incomplete. It's not wholly biblical. I've got a page and a half from instruments in the Redeemer's hands. So I know it's lengthy reading, but uh, let me just read it to you. Okay, Sit back and relax. And he highlights the mentality of so many pastors and how we're to respond. So get comfortable, but don't fall asleep. Right? <laughs> This is um, Paul Tripp. Is it Paul Tripp or Ted Tripp? Okay, Paul, that, that brother. Okay. It was one of those moments that a teacher couldn't buy for a million dollars. I was teaching a counseling course required of all third-year seminary students in the pastoral track. The class tended to be populated by guys who thought that if they preached well enough, if they preached well-honed honed theological sermons, 
their congregations wouldn't need any more ministry, personal ministry. They saw my course as a pointless addition to an overcrowded schedule. This didn't make for a very lively learning environment. The first year I taught the course, I jumped right into the material without trying to demonstrate its importance. It was a long and hard semester. The next year, I decided to begin each class with a true, with true personal pastoral horror stories until the class cried uncle. I told story after story of late night emergencies, relational catastrophes that were scattered throughout my ministry as a pastor. I kept it up until it was clear that the students were convinced that they needed what I was about to teach them. In the middle of one of my graphic anecdotes, something happened that I will never forget. An exasperated future pastor threw up his hand and blurted out, All right, we know we are going to have these projects in our churches. Just tell us what to do with them so that we can get back to the work of ministry. A hush covered the room. In his frustration, this man had verbalized the attitude of many pastors toward the world of biblical counseling, discipleship, and personal ministry. I knew this was a golden teaching moment, and I wanted to be a good steward. I asked him to repeat the word he had used for people in difficulty. In hesitating embarrassment, he mumbled, Projects. As the other seminarians snickered in their seats, There were many things wrong with this young man's perspective on pastoral ministry, but the most serious is this, it was devoid of love. There was no zeal to incarnate the self-sacrificing love of Christ. He saw lost and struggling people as impediments to what he was called to do, and the need to respond to them as a huge interference. His ministry, his view of ministry centered on well-delivered sermons and well-attended programs that will produce a thriving and growing church. He saw the church as a well-designed, well-led, successful organization. But I, but when I look at the church, I see a hospital full of people in various stages of dealing with the disease of sin. Imagine a doctor coming out of an examining room to say to his receptionist, sick people, sick people, sick people. All I ever see is sick people. Why don't healthy people ever come and visit me? The church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin. People who are not fully formed into the image of Jesus Christ. The church is full of people who have lost their way and don't even know it. Who haven't made a connection between their daily problems and the transforming grace of Christ. Everywhere you look, you will find couples who are struggling to love. Parents who are struggling to be patient. Children who are attracted to temptation. And friends who battle battle the disappointments of imperfect relationships. This is 100% of the church's membership. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their trust in Christ, gather to know and love Him better, and learn to love others as He has designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess. The place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. In class that afternoon, I wondered how this student could have gotten it so wrong. But as I drove home that night, the closer I got and the more uptight I became, I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice to come home just once? 
to a house that wasn't full of problems that I needed to solve? As I voiced that frustration to myself, it hit me. I was just like my student. I wanted children who had never suffered the effects of the fall and who possessed the innate ability to make all the right choices. I wanted family devotions and a few lectures to produce children who would do quite well on their own. I too lacked the self-sacrificing love essential in a family full of sinners. Like my student, I saw my children as being in the way of the plan rather than the focus for it. I am deeply persuaded that the foundation for people transforming ministry is not sound theology, it is love. Without love, our theology is a boat with our oars. Love is what drove God to send and sacrifice His Son. Love led Christ to subject Himself to a sinful world and the horrors of the cross. Love is what causes Him to seek and save the lost and to persevere until each of His children is transformed into His image. His love will not rest until all of His children are at His side in glory. The hope of every sinner does not rest in theological answers, but in the love of Christ for His own. Without it, we have no hope personally, relationally, or eternally. We cannot be part of Christ's life-giving work without being willing to lay down our own lives. Because of people, because of pride, because of professionalism, life on life, showing yourself ministry is a challenge. But what is the example that Christ set for us? The hired hand, John 10, runs away when the wolf comes. Because he cares not for the sheep. The good shepherd lays himself down. He loves the sheep. He knows the sheep. He lays himself down. So Paul, through the Holy Scriptures, is calling the leaders of Cornerstone to show yourself, to come out. Stop hiding behind doctrine. Stop hiding behind ministry and formality and come out and show yourself the good and the bad, the full or picture of who you are because you love God and because you love God's people. Let me end with five questions for all the leaders here, all the shepherds of our church. How much are the people in your life a source of personal frustration? How much are they a source of frustration for you? How often do you give in to stress and do things that do not honor Christ or incarnate His character? How often do you give in where you fail to incarnate Christ, where you fail to model Christ? About this, how often do you see people as obstacles of ministry? You know, only if that guy would get with the plan. If only that girl would listen and just follow, ministry would be perfect. Right. How often do you see people as obstacles rather than objects of ministry? Continuing with that question, whom have you given up on? 
Are there people in your ministry, in your sphere of influence that you've given up on? That you're running away from? Do people sense that you love them? It's not in a relational, like sentimental, touchy-feely way. But have you demonstrated personal love to them? Have you lived it out? Christ washed the feet of the disciples to show the extent of his love for them. So we see our parents and their love for us and we look at the things that they did, the sacrifices that they've made. Apart from teaching, apart from your doctrine, personally, have you demonstrated your personal love to each person? And the fifth question is, do you love them? Do you love ministry or do you love people? Do you love teaching or do you love the people to whom you teach? Do you love leading or do you love the people whom you are leading? Let's joyfully uh, affirm uh, Christ's model, the model of the apostles and show ourselves holy, commit ourselves to this ministry of life and doctrine at church. If we could just um, bow our heads and can I ask you for a minute just to um, pray for your small group leaders, pray for your flock shepherds, just for a minute, to pray for those who labor among us. Lord, we just see a different angle to the Gospels. That the sacrifice was your incarnation and your death on the cross. The sacrifice wasn't in the doctrine of who you were, who you are. It's not in the theology of Christ or theology of of the gospel. You humbling yourself to become a man, to be a slave, to die on the cross, to live that perfect life, to endure with sinners, to be that example for us, to suffer and die on our behalf, caused you great, great sacrifice. Lord, and you call us to follow in your footsteps, that we are not just to coldly pass on these precious truths as mere Um, information but we are to birth it in our lives we are to bring life to it by demonstrating it and demonstrating it to people that you have given us that you have entrusted to us Lord we pray that you will grant um, much faith and grace courage strength of conviction Lord you will grant much humility to the leaders of our church 
much humility, O oh Lord, to come out from the formality and the professionalism of ministry, to come out from hiding behind teaching and theology and, and formal ministry, to come out from self-protection and not seeking to be vulnerable. Lord, you would cause us to lay down ourselves because we love you and because we love your people to show ourselves to be a model of, of, of Christianity in every way. Lord, may Titus 2, um, the commission you give to, gave to Titus be upon hearts and minds of all the leaders of our beloved church. Lord, we thank you for the gospel by which you make all these things possible. Lord, our hope is not in ourselves, not in our church. Our confidence is in you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen.